I'm Ron Scharf. I'm Avi Kaufman. And this is Accent Insights. Today we have a special guest, a fabulous residential real estate attorney and my childhood friend, David Jaime. Welcome, David. <laughs> hey, Avi. Hi, guys. How are you? Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate being here. So who are you? And can, can you give us a brief overview of uh, like what you do? Sure. So I, I'm David Jaime. I am a uh, real estate attorney. Uh, I am a partner at Lieberman Law. We are a purely uh, real estate law firm. We have offices throughout Massachusetts. Our main office is in Newton. We have offices in Boston, Westboro, Shrewsbury, Beverly, Braintree. You serve the, whole, you serve yeah. the whole state of Massachusetts. <laughs> but you're based here in Newton. Yes. So something you said, you said, I'm a real estate attorney. And I think this is an important distinction that not everyone appreciates. You specialize in residential transactions. So what does that mean? Why do we need a real estate attorney in Massachusetts? And what does a real estate attorney do? So like any other specialty in in any other field, really, um, you don't get to understand the ins and outs of the topic unless you're in it day in and day out. Uh, Sure, any attorney with a license can practice that type of law, except for patents. Um, But you don't really understand the ins and outs unless you've been doing it purely that type of law. Practically speaking, the problem with attorneys who uh, practice real estate law and um, are litigators is their schedule is overcome a lot of times by needing to have appearances in court. And while our timelines are always very tight in real estate, uh, it breaks up the process. So just like any professional, I guess, the more specialized you are, the more you see issues come up, the the quicker and more efficiently you can deal with that. Absolutely. And and even even more so in our field, uh, you see that when somebody focuses purely on residential real estate law, it's become even even more specific. So uh, just like you guys know, uh, when, when you are a residential realtor as opposed to a commercial realtor, when you're focused in on this type of sale, you know more, you are more in tune with what's on the market and uh, you can serve your clients that much better. So let's let's take a step back, David. I've never seen a, a real estate closing that, that didn't have a lawyer on both sides. Why is that? Um, well, technically speaking, there is only one attorney that's necessary in real estate transaction in Massachusetts. And that's the attorney that actually conducts the closing, the closing attorney. And that's required by law. It's not required by law. Um, if there's a cash deal, it's not required that there be a attorney in doing it. Literally, you could go and give money to one person and they give you their deed to the, to the house. The problem becomes, how do you trust that when you hand the money over to that person, the deed that they give you will go to record and everything is going to be kosher? You really can't. So there needs to be an attorney in the middle that holds the funds for the seller in escrow and holds the deed from the seller in escrow and can put the deed on record and then give the funds to the seller so that everybody feels comfortable in the process. Hmm. However, it gets more complicated than that because these transactions are for a lot of money and people want to be protected. And so uh, in any normal transaction, you have at least two attorneys. Um, The seller wants to be represented and the buyer wants to be represented. And the third attorney normally would be the attorney that is going to do the closing for the lender. Uh. 
And thankfully, in Massachusetts, the buyer's attorney can also act as the lender's attorney. There's, there's, there's no issue there. So in any normal transaction, you're seeing two attorneys, a sales attorney and the one that's conducting the closing and helping with uh, represent the buyer. So that, that brings us to an important point. I think people often get worried about fees um, when they hear the word attorney. But when you represent a bank and the buyer together, usually the fees are pretty reasonable. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it, it's actually funny. Every, every time I get on the phone, especially with first-time home buyers, um, and they talk to me, they're, they're timid. They, <laughs> it's like, it's like they, want to, they want to figure out what's the fee and should they get off the phone as quickly as possible. <laughs> And the first thing I do is I say, I'm not that kind of attorney. <laughs> I'm the kind of attorney that you can call from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And you they do. Text me. <laughs> and they do. And you, can, you, know, you have my cell phone number. You can call me. You can text me. And I charge one flat fee. So there's no issue. I actually want you to talk to me as much as possible because it's real estate. And I need to know everything that the buyer knows. I need to know everything that the agent knows. I need to have full communication with the, with the lender. And it would be impossible if I was charging... Per hour, I would be a very, very rich man. <laughs> no, that's not, but it's not, it's not feasible. Also, the other side of this is when you are getting financing, um, no matter what type of mortgage you're getting, you're, you're refinancing or you're getting your first mortgage, second mortgage, it doesn't matter. The cost of the attorney that's actually sitting in front of you to conduct the closing is always built into your actual closing costs for the lender. So when you're getting a loan estimate from the lender, normally on page two, there's a fee line on there that says settlement agent, which is another name for the closing attorney. And you're always paying for that person as part of the closing cost. When I'm acting as the buyer's attorney and I'm doing the closing, because the roles are overlapping with each other, I lower my fee greatly for being the buyer's attorney so that the buyer isn't really paying twice for my services. And, that, and that's great. So that's a big benefit when you're you know, choosing to have your own attorney, your own buyer's attorney, and to have a separate uh, representation for the lender. You should talk to them and say, hey, you know, if, if the closing attorney can also uh, represent me as my buyer's attorney and save me some money, that would be fantastic. So, right. What you're saying is if you're going to have a mortgage, you're paying for an attorney in the cost of that mortgage. Absolutely. And then uh, along with that, for a small additional fee, that same attorney usually yep. can represent you as well. Absolutely. Now, there's something there's something called a list, right? You have to be on typically the bank's list. Every lender um, has a list of approved attorneys. You can't just close a loan for, for a lender and be, be just anyone. You have to have different types of insurance. They have to double check your licenses to make sure that you are you are who you say you are. So there's all these overlays that the federal government requires for the lenders and the lenders in turn require for us to be able to actually conduct the closing. On top of that, you have lenders who only like to work with certain attorneys because they, they've done a great job for them and they want to continue to work with those people because they make their own processes simpler and they don't have to keep double checking their work. So they have a closed list. You have a bank who has an open list. Pretty much, if you can pass their requirements for insurance and uh, licensing, you can close for them, right? Because they don't, they're a national company. They don't have time to mess around with this. But you have other lenders 
who have closed lists of attorneys that they have vetted and they only want those attorneys to close for them because they have they have relationships with them. Right. Yeah. So I've, I've certainly been in situations with credit unions where my buyers have liked their own attorney, someone they've worked with before, they've wanted them. And we've had to go to the credit union and say, this is the attorney we'd like to use. And sometimes the bank or the credit union will say, they'll do some diligence and say, okay, it's fine. And sometimes they'll say, no, we right. only will take someone right. from our list. And that's not comfortable. And then I guess the buyer has to decide, okay, do I want to take my loan from this bank because the terms are so good? Or do I want to take, you know, look for similar terms from a different bank who will use the attorney that I'm comfortable with? Yeah. And frankly, that's happened many, many times in my, in my history of, of uh, doing real estate law where the client is very comfortable with me. They have chosen a small, smaller bank or a credit union that for some crazy reason, I'm not on their list and they refuse to have a one-off closing with me. And uh, frankly, they've come to me and said, do you know uh, someone else that I can go to? And I've said, sure, I have many, many relationships. But I have good news for you guys that I, I and my firm are on the majority of bank and credit unions lists in Massachusetts. So let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> I've never had a client use a bank whose list you were not on. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Let's keep that going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into the fun stuff. Buyer, you have a seller, uh, you know, we, the seller gets an offer or a buyer gets their offer accepted. And that's just the start of the journey, right? To get right. from offer accepted to closing is a process. And even after we get past home inspection and all that, there's a ton of issues that come up. What are some of the most common issues and what are some of the craziest issues that you see? Uh, <laughs> in your Be sure to use names because we're all transparency. Who it is, Absolutely. how to find them on Facebook, and yeah. how to shame them properly. On June 28th. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, this is real estate. The fact is that once you have enough experience. And that's, that's the point of picking who, the professional that you want to work with. You want to make sure that this person has a lot of experience because Murphy's law 100% applies in real estate. You know, things go wrong that you could never have thought of and you have to quickly respond to. You want to work with someone that has seen the pitfalls, the normal pitfalls and has already worked to avoid them. The most common issues that we have in real estate transactions is um, title issues. Title issues come up quite often. Um, the, the most common issues have to do with uh, lenders not releasing the mortgages that are on record. So once you get a mortgage, you have this mortgage, great, I have a mortgage. Uh, you work, you pay it off. Wonderful, you paid off this mortgage. You you refinanced it or you sold the house and, and it was paid off. Well, in fact, the mortgage that is on record at the Registry of Deeds with the name of your property on it technically has to also be released from the Registry of Deeds. So a document needs to be recorded that says, Congratulations, you paid off this loan and it is now released. Well, there was a <laughs> there was a period of time in the 1990s and 2000s when there were a lot of mergers happening with the banks, the banks were throwing mortgages around like it was a hot cake. And a lot of times what we saw was one bank gives, uh, gets a mortgage from a, from a borrower. They sell it off quickly to bank number two, and then they don't keep track of the records and bank number one ends up releasing it from the record. So it's the wrong bank. 
And wouldn't you know it, bank number one has now closed down and it closed down about 10 years ago and the FDIC has the rights to it. Or the best is when we have no idea who actually has the right to sign on their behalf anymore because there were so many mergers happening. And believe it or not, that's actually a simple issue. Uh, worst, worst title issue I ever saw was when we have a, we got a title examination report back. So every closing that, that we do, we have to get a title examination search from a title examination company. So, and uh, you know, is the buyer going to be taking 100% ownership? Does the seller have 100% ownership to give to the buyer? And are there any liens against the property? So no problem. Title looked good, except for the line at the bottom that said, there is a 1% missing interest from 40 years back and, and nobody caught it. It had, it had changed hands, I think it was like four or five times between seller and buyer, seller and buyer. And nobody looked at the math to realize that the person after that probate situation had only taken 99% ownership and not 100%. So someone someone got a phone call like your great 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 uncle That's left ex- you one percent of this random property. It's actually even better than that. The great great grandfather died in World War II, I think. So that person was no longer around. They had one child. We tracked him down to Montana. They said, "Yeah, we'll help." And it wasn't even it wasn't even that person. It was actually their their daughter we got in contact with and she was like, yeah, my father is in a nursing home. We'll try to get a notary out there. It was, like, it was a complete mess. Good story though, because it ended up closing. Like I tell people, you know, real estate's funny in that almost everything can be figured out either with time or with money. And both ways, you got to have patience but let's, I mean, let's take that example you just used, the 1%, the missing 1%. Mm-hmm. So you've caught it because you're diligent. You have a good title search company. Um, someone missed it in the past. Now, if you can't resolve that and get that 1% back into the property that's being transferred, what happens? If now that we know about the one percenter's interest, technically that's a disclosure. That has to be disclosed. And that person could come back and, and haunt us. If we had not found out about that 1% interest, all the standards say is that if you start with a good deed and it's within 50 years, then you are clear. If we needed to clear this up, the seller would have to go to land court in Boston and go in front of a judge and get the judge to clear the title for them. And a judge could do that. A judge, a judge could say, a judge could we're going to invalidate that 1%. Yeah, that there would be abandonment, um, legal procedures that would be put in place to, to convince a judge that this interest no longer existed. Who pays if that has to happen? That's a great question. And what you're really asking me is, uh, did the seller have owner's title insurance? <laughs> ah, so that is our next big topic. <laughs> title insurance. You always recommend that the buyers get this. Buyers pretty much always do get it. What is it? Why do you always recommend it? In all my years, I only have had two people that did not take owner's title insurance. One did not speak English and her daughter, who was her translator, uh, literally could not explain what owner's title insurance did. And so she didn't want to spend the, the money, which really in terms of what you're spending on the house, 
is a pittance. Of, what is that? Four dollars per thousand. It's, it's four dollars per per thousand of the purchase price. But actually, if you're getting a loan at the same time, the lender's title insurance is forced on you. You have to pay, which is which is kind of ironic. You have to pay to ensure that the lender can foreclose on you. That, <laughs> so that that is forced on you. As a benefit of this, when you get the owner's title insurance at the same time at closing, the lender's title insurance is actually subtracted from the cost of the owner. So you're getting oh. the owners at a, at a discount, at, at a large discount. It insures, and, and almost everybody gets the expanded um, policy, which is literally, it's like the difference of dollars. Um, what it ensures is that you are 100% the owner of this property when you're taking title. And this is a one-time... One-time fee. You pay just once like when you that's close, right. and, and then then it you're protects you forever. That's right. And it protects backwards. So what it's doing is it's not protecting you for, for what you do to your own title. Listen, if you don't want to pay your credit cards and they put, they put liens against your property, that's on you. If you have somebody do work on the property and you don't feel like paying them, that's called a mechanics lien. That's going to go on the property. That's on you. You know, the insurance company isn't insuring for your crazy work on your on the house. But what it does insure for is that from the day you purchase the property back, you are fully protected. And the expanded policy goes even further than that. It, it uh, protects you against encroachments by by neighbors. So if the neighbor's garage is found out to actually be on your land or what vice versa, if your garage is, is found to be on your neighbor's land and they try to force you to remove it. It protects you in that. Um, it protects you against uh, old municipal fees. And I actually, it's a good example. I had uh, I had a deal in Brockton, of all places, where the the city came back to my client who had bought and said, we have done an audit of our system and found that there's a 1994 tax that was never paid on this house. And wow. we'd like you to pay it. Oh, that was ridiculous. So, so you know, that my client came to me. Um, what, what ended up happening is I, I showed the town the municipal lien certificate that they had given me that said that there was nothing owed. And, you know, I, I talked to the town clerk and the tax collector and got it resolved. But if, if I hadn't been able to do that, my client's owner's title insurance would have kicked in and protected them. When you say it protects them, how do they resolve that? They'll either go to court and protect them that way or they'll have to pay it. But either way, the, the client is not responsible. Let me ask you this. I bought title insurance when I bought my own home, and then I refied. As did I. Twice. Yep. Do I still, is my policy still good? Absolutely. Owner's title insurance does not affect your refinancing. They're two separate uh, policies. One is owner's, one is lender's. Every time you get a mortgage, though, guess what? You got to pay again. New lenders, the, new lenders, new lenders policy. policy. Right. But I only have to only pay once. for myself once. That's right. And and a little tidbit that your listeners should know is that if you ever change the deed to to the house, so let's say uh, Avi purchases a purchases a property with his lovely wife, and want to put it into a trust, or they want to deed an investment property into an LLC. Once that deed change happens. You have to give notice to the insur- owner's insurance company uh, that we're, we've changed the ownership and they will in turn say, okay, no problem. The same owner's title insurance will transfer over to uh, to you guys. If you don't do that, technically speaking, you've invalidated, you've invalidated your owner's title insurance. That's so interesting. And that's a good tidbit because I think a lot of people move things into trusts or LLCs for estate planning or they own Absolutely. something and they get married. So that is something important to keep in mind. David, thank you so much for joining us. 
Stay tuned as we continue our conversation with David Jaime next week. As always, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, we are at info at accentbrookline.com. Until next time.